0: How's everybody doing? How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you. Judges chapter 11. Get open there. Continue on through the book of Judges. All right. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, uh, for this Thursday night, for this time that we can be together. That we can get into Scripture, I pray, Lord, that it would be a beneficial time; that it would be a blessing, you know, for everyone that made a sacrifice of their time to be here. That it would be uh, that it would be worth it. That Your Spirit would move; that You would speak to our hearts, and uh, and have Your way with us tonight. I do believe that You have something for each one of us personally. <clears throat> and individually, so I pray that we would not leave here before we receive that from you, and I thank you, Lord, it's always so good to speak directly to us and meet us where we're at, it's in your name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen, okay, so um, we begin this week again, another time, a dark time in Israel's history. Um, We talked in the first message about this kind of sin cycle that goes on throughout this book. It's, uh, It's a depressing cycle, to say the least. You have this constant repetition of Israel falling into a sin, of God allowing them to get carried away as a result of their sin by their enemies. And then when they finally come to themselves... They realize that uh, that they don't have to be under this oppression. They don't have to be living in this situation. They cry out to God, and God is always faithful to rescue them, to return to them. So we begin in this dark time, Israel, under the oppression of the enemy. Uh, God had allowed them to get taken away as a result, uh, specifically of their idolatry. If you remember last week... Uh, you're hard-pressed to find a longer list of idols in all of the Bible. I mean, just jam-packed. Israel was was hungry for idolatry. They were snatching up everything they could to worship uh, that the world was worshiping. So they repented, they returned to God, and now they gathered together at the end of chapter 10 at uh, Gilead to find someone to lead them into war against Ammon. And so this is where we pick up. Let's look at the first three verses. Judges 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. If there's one thing that we've seen over and over again in this book, one thing that always surprises me about this book is the people that God chooses, these men that God uses, they're never the people that we would expect God to use. I think uh, all of us, I can't be the only one. I have an idea of the type of guy that God is going to use, and he's not Jephthah. Uh, He's he's you know probably a clean cut guy, you know, and he's uh, he's got his stuff together. He comes from a good pedigree. Maybe he's a PK, you know, a pastor's kid. Like uh, there's actually a couple of PKs in the room. Boo, you're you're a PK, and uh, you're you're not you're you don't seem happy about that. You can smile. It's all right to be a PK. Yeah, so, uh, but, you know, you expect them to be, uh, knowledgeable and experienced. They surround themselves by qualified people, you know, but here you have Jephthah, and he's the son of a prostitute mother and a immoral, sleazy father. He's hated by his brothers and driven out, driven out of his hometown. And the only people that he seems to attract to him are men that my Bible describes as worthless. Uh, If you have an NIV, your Bible might say adventurers. Uh, The NIV is trying just ever so hard to put a positive spin on this Hebrew word, which is rake. And this Hebrew word rake literally means empty vessels. Uh, So I think adventurers is a bit of a stretch uh, for a translation of this word rake. Uh, They're empty vessels. And I don't know what you say about the type of guy that you would describe as an empty vessel. Uh, maybe that's the, the closest to uh, to a Hebrew word as they could come for a man that you would simply describe in our day maybe as an idiot. They're just an empty vessel. Uh, there's not much to them. They're a, they're a simple per- person. And, and, and it's actually a, a different word uh, than in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, but they're often translated as the same, which is simply just meaningless. These are meaningless people. They're worthless people. They're vain people. But these are the only people... That Jephthah seems to draw to himself, and uh, and but but nonetheless, uh, you know this is the guy that that God's going to use, and I don't think that any of us could could have foreseen this, any of us would have suspected this, and maybe if you didn't know the story, you wouldn't have begun this chapter and said, oh Jephthah, now this is the guy. Yeah, I'm not a gambling man, but I'm going to put all my all my chips on the prostitute's son and his idiot friends. I think that they're the guys. They're going to go for it. They're going to win the day. you know. And I, I can't help but think of D.L. Moody. There's two men in church history that I really love, and they couldn't be on further ends of the, of the spectrum. It's Spurgeon and D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody, if there was one person that shouldn't have been used by God in church history, it's D.L. Moody. Yet he, become, he became the, one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century. You know, and it was in a, it was in a similar time of American history. There was just rampant apostasy. Churches were closing down. You know, everyone was given to, to alcoholism and, and, you know, it was, it was a dark time. And then came D.L. Moody and, and he's, he's a brilliant man. He's a mighty man and a very good speaker. And if you know anything about D.L. Moody, you know, none of those things are true. He was, he was illiterate and he was ineloquent and he was a shoe salesman. You know, and, 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 I, I don't know if, have any of you ever sold shoes? I was a shoe, do you still sell shoes? I don't want to insult you. I, I was, I was, I was a shoe salesman for four months. There is no more base existence than, <laughs> to be a shoe salesman it's it's not a job fit for a dignified person you're dealing all day with people's funky feet and their their corns and bunions and it was just it was a gnarly nasty job but this was DL Moody's job and this was the only job that someone like him could have he was he was absolutely illiterate and, and as i already said very ineloquent i remember once reading uh, a story about DL Moody of when he went to speak at Cambridge University And you think of Cambridge University. I mean, these are some of the most intelligent people in all of the world. They felt disgraced that D.L. Moody would even come and speak at their school. So the students of the school devised a plan that as soon as D.L. Moody took to the platform, they would heckle him. They would make fun of him. As soon as the first stupid thing came out of his mouth, they, they would begin to, to stand to their feet and put him down and, and shame him in front of the crowd and get him to leave a, a platform that, in their estimation, he had no right standing on in the first place. And, and so Dio Moody took to the stage, and he stood on the edge of the platform, and he looked directly at the students, the these students there gathered that day, and he said, young gentlemen, don't never say that God don't love you, for he do. <laughs> and they were dumbfounded by the statement. They were they were flabbergasted. They they couldn't they, they couldn't bring themselves to mock the man. And they were they were entranced by him and and a few minutes and he went on with his message and he was speaking and then he came back to the point and he said it again. Young gentlemen, don't never say that God don't love you for he do. And they were broken. And they were humbled and their eyes were open and many of them were saved. And D.L. Moody sparked revival in England, just as he had done in America. And you got to ask yourself the question, why, why D.L. Moody? I mean, weren't, weren't there people that could formulate a coherent thought and put it out of their mouth? I have no idea why D.L. Moody. But it proves that God could use anyone, and God desires to use everyone. Why Jephthah? I have no idea. But God used him, and he did a wonderful work through him. Let's continue to learn about him. In verse 4 it says, It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was, when the people of Ammon made war against Israel, that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? Listen to this. This is is so interesting, their response. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now. Is that an answer? That's such a bizarre answer that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the uh, elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness uh, between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mitzvah. So Jephthah is first run out of Gilead, he's kicked out of his hometown, and now he's brought back to Gilead to be the, the leader in his town. And you have to ask the question why? You know, throughout the week, at random times, if I was laying in my hammock, you know, trying to to read my comic book, I had this. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. Uh, it, it, you know, but uh, it, or if I was washing dishes, you know, which I did once this week, and it was there was a lot of dishes though, so I think I I earned my keep for another week. Keep around. But uh, at random moments, it would pop into my head, and I would begin to think of the question: Why, Jephthah? Why of all the able-bodied men? In Gilead, did they travel to Tob, which isn't even in Israel. According to to most scholars, Tob is in Syria. So uh, several hundred miles on foot and maybe by donkey to retrieve a man that they had kicked out and disgraced of their own community. You know, there was no satisfying answer. Even Jephthah had to ask the question. Jephthah asked them, why are you here? And how did they respond? They said, this is why we're here. That's not an answer. That's, that's like saying, why are you here? And they're saying, I'm here. You know, it's bizarre. If you have a New Living Translation, it's interesting. I was so confused by this verse I, uh, on Blue Letter Bible. Again, it's like every week. It's a commercial for Blue Letter Bible. Uh, you should use them. They're great. It's .com. Uh, you know, it's not like a book or anything. But, uh, you, you know, you can go there and you click on the, the V, I think it is, and they have other versions. Um, and it just lays them all out side by side. And I was going down every single one of them, and none of them translated this verse in a way that made any sense to answer Jephthah's question. And then you get to the New Living Translation, and they say something like, uh, we're here because we're in distress and we need you. But those words are nowhere in the Hebrew. That idea is, isn't anywhere in the original translation of the scripture. I mean, they, they couldn't e- even figure out for themselves why they had showed up on Jephthah's doorstep. So all week I struggled with the question, and I couldn't find an answer that satisfied my curiosity until I came to Matthew Henry's commentary, and he writes this, and, and this is a really interesting insight. He says, the particular case between the Gileadites and Jephthah was a resemblance of the general state of the case between Israel and, uh, and God at this time. They had thrust God out by their idolatries, yet in their distress begged his help. He told them how justly he might have rejected them, and yet graciously delivered them. And so did Jephthah. Many slight God and good men till they come to be in distress, and then they're desirous of God's mercy and good men's prayers. What a brilliant assessment of the situation. You know, this is exactly what they were doing. They kicked Jephthah out because they said, you know what, we don't want you taking our money. They kicked God out because they said, you know, we don't want you ruining our party. And they threw them both out, but then in their time of need, who did they go to? So saw in the last chapter, they went right to God. And now in this chapter, they go right to Jephthah. It's as if the doctor comes in through the door and says, it's cancer. Or maybe for some of you younger people, your teacher walks through the door, sits down at their desk, and says, it's a pop quiz today. Maybe for some of you parents, you hear a scream outside your doors, and, and, and the first thing you do, our natural instinct, what is it? You go, oh God, no! Save me! Help me, please! Be there for me! And we call out to God, and, and and God would say, just as Jephthah would say, well, you had no time for me before. You ran me out of town. You didn't want anything to do with me. Why are you coming to me now? But this is the first thing we do. God would say, I haven't heard from you in quite a while. And now the walls are crashing down, you're calling out to me. And Jephthah is a perfect picture for Israel of exactly what they were doing, exactly uh, how they were relating to God. Now, the amazing thing about this, the thing that always surprises me, the thing that's completely unnatural for me with my personality, is that God takes them back. And that he's merciful to them. And that's exactly what Jephthah does. Despite the fact that they were cruel to Jephthah, that they ran Jephthah out of the town, he goes home with them. But he goes home with them under the condition that he'll be the head of them. That he's going to be in charge of them. And I think this is where we often go off the tracks. You know, we have in our in our own heads, we have this kind of panic button that we slam on when we're in distress. And that panic button, you know, it goes right to God. And we're like, God, I need your help. Please help me right now. And God says, okay, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to help you. But I want more than that with you. I don't want just your 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 sad moments or your scary moments. I want all of your moments. I want to come in and be the king of you. I want to come in and sit in authority over you. You see, it's got to be more than these frightening panic moments. I have a friend, and she always sends me a text message when she's going through a terrible trial in her life. It's the only time I ever hear from her. I haven't actually talked to her in maybe two or three years now but I randomly get a text message from her every six months or so that says, please pray for me. You know, this is going on in my life. And I'm not God. (laughs) I'm Michael. And I get agitated by it. I think, you know, why don't you ever want to talk to me? Why don't you ever have any time for me? If you really cared about me, You would, you would have a deeper kind of relationship with me. I actually feel like you kind of are just using me. Now, I don't, I don't have a, a pulse on God's emotions, and I don't claim to. But this is how we treat God when we do these things. We're using Him as an escape hatch, instead of having Him as the Lord in our life, what He wants to be. We're simplifying him to our Savior in a situation. But he's not the overriding king of our heart. He wants to go deeper with us. He wants to daily walk with us. He wants more than these passing moments that come up every six months. He wants all of us. We continue in verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon saying, What do you have against me? you have come to fight against me in my land. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore those lands peaceably. You can almost exchange, uh, this passage for everything you read in international news headlines today. It's gonna read very much so the same way. Israel is blamed for taking foreign lands that do not belong to them. And if you keep up with what's happening in Israel today, or if you have for the last 40 years or so since the Six Day War, uh, then you know that this is a common argument in that, you know, place on on our little planet, all you have to do is just replace Ammon for Palestine. Uh, but the conversation is going to sound exactly the same way. Jephthah, is, is, he's going to say, this is our land. We have a right to be here. God gave us this land. And Ammon, just like Palestine, is going to say, well, we don't want you here. We'd prefer if you just left here. And we don't care if you think that your God has given you a right to be here. And Jephthah is first going to educate them, and then he's going to challenge them. And it's a wonderful little exchange, and and little maybe isn't the best word because it's actually somewhat lengthy. So bear with me starting at verse 14. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. And the people said to him, uh, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom, the land of Moab. So they came around the east side. They're going around all these lands that didn't give them them permission to pass through. And encamped on the other side of the Arnon, uh, but they did not enter the border of Moab, for the uh, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to the to Sihon, king of uh, the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, "Please let us pass through your land in our uh, place." Uh, but Sihon did not trust Israel. And to pass through his territory, so Sion gathered all the people together and encamped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel uh, delivered Sion, or Sihon, and all his people into the hands of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to Jabbok and from the wilderness to Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has disposed, or dispossessed, sorry, the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Possess it. Will you not possess whatever Chamesh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God uh, takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever... Fight against them while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and in its villages and Or, Ar, maybe? Its villages and in all the cities along the banks of Arnon for three hundred years. Why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord the judge uh redeem or render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. That's quite a lengthy read, wasn't it? That was rough. Uh, but it's very simple to understand, right? They uh they didn't pursue this territory. They didn't go into take by force this territory. In fact The Ammonites went out to fight against Israel because they didn't trust them. And they lost that battle. And and it sounds just like the Six-Day War all over again. They started it. They attacked Israel. And they lost. And now they're saying, uh, you can't take our land. You know, but excuse me, that's what happens when you start a war and you lose it. I mean, this is just the way things work. And Israel says God gave us this victory, so it's our land. If your God gave you the victory, then it would be your land. You know, and, and, and very, it's very simple reasoning. It's easy for us to follow. It makes perfect logical sense. Uh, but, but as, uh, we've seen historically, this kind of logical reasoning doesn't go very far in that part of the planet. So they've been having this same argument for thousands of years. Uh, and, and this is going to culminate in another bloody battle as a result of this same territorial disagreement. So we see that in verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. He defeated them from Aror, as far as Mineth, 20 cities and, and to Abel Caramim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So Jetha sets out. He's going to attack them and, and we have this interesting little list of these communities that he passes through on his way there. We saw that in the first verse. And, and it's, and it's, it's building this, this tension and it could be culminating in this doubt inside of him. And as he's going, you know, this distance and, and facing this, uh, this impending battle, it might have dawned on him at some point that he was no one special and that maybe he wouldn't win this battle. And this led him to make a very foolish vow. You know, as he's writing in, he, he might have been thinking, well, I'm just the son of a prostitute, and all my buddies are idiots, and and who am I, and what can I do? And and in his own reasoning, well, i got to figure out a way to make sure that God is on my side. And so he says, okay, God, if you'll give me this victory... Then I'll give you the first thing I see when when I get home, the first thing that walks out of my door, it's yours and, and it's and it's and it's a moment of of foolishness that's going to haunt him for the rest of his life. this promise to sacrifice as a burnt offering, wholly consumed by fire upon an altar, the first thing that he sees when he gets home. and so that day. Jephthah had the victory that he so desperately wanted, and that night he returned home to make his sacrifice. And in verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and it came to pass When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity with my friends and I, or my friends and I. And so he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed and she knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. What an unnecessary tragedy. You know, it's his only daughter, and uh, he had made a vow against her, sealing her fate. Um... And the question that I kept on thinking about is: uh, is is would I do it? You know, if I made a vow to God, uh, but in these circumstances, would I go through with it? You know, and and I don't have any children, but those of you that that do, your child is precious to you. It's it's you know the most precious thing in the world to you, but Isn't God supposed to be more precious to you? And it's a terrible test that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy because it's a test of our loyalty and our affection. It's a test of what do you truly treasure and what are you really obedient to. There's some debate among scholars as to what actually happened to Jephthah's daughter. They're, They're pretty well divided because... I think most scholars don't want to uh think that any father could offer his only daughter as as a burnt sacrifice to put her upon the altar and light her on fire. No one wants to think that something like that uh could happen. It's barbaric and pagan uh, so many commentators think that he sent his daughter away to a monastery, that she would live out the, uh, her remaining days as a nun. And that's why the text focuses so much on her virginity. Uh, so her father sacrificed her by sending her away uh, to live this life as a nun and that she would never know a man. And there's there's indications of this in Scripture. You can find other women uh, that sacrificed themselves in this way. I'll, I'll give you two references. Uh, Leviticus 27 You'll find it in the first couple of verses. Leviticus 27 and Exodus 38. You're going to find it in the first 10 verses. Uh, You can find these two kind of examples that might support this theory that maybe she was sent away and that's how he sacrificed her. It was a symbolic sacrifice. But then there's another group of commentators that believe that it's a literal sacrifice. And among those commentators, there's a greater division of if this was the right thing to do, or if this was the wrong thing to do, and you would be surprised by who, who is in each camp. I'm sure several people that you you know, uh, and and it's a very troubling thing to consider that that uh, that these commentators say that the text doesn't allow for this sort of interpretation. A literal rendering and reading of this text says that Jephthah sacrificed her. He laid her upon the altar, and and burned her as a, as a sign of worship, and and with keeping with his vow, maybe not a great moment, to, but anyways. Um, and and so, what's the conclusion of the matter? What's the conclusion of the matter? Did he literally sacrifice her, or did he symbolically sacrifice her? Well, I don't want to be amongst those commentators that uh, that make you you know, scowl. And I've seen that on several of your faces already. This is the one thing you can know about this story for sure, is that this never had to happen. This was never supposed to happen. Whether it was this symbolic sacrifice of him just sending her away to live in the mountains, to never... Uh, be with a man or have a family, you know, for her to, you know, live in, in, in the tabernacle as, as a person that would lead, uh, worship in one of these verses. That's what their jobs were. Or if it was a literal sacrifice and he, he burnt her in the fire. You can know this for sure that it wasn't supposed to happen. It never had to happen. It was completely unnecessary. Uh, turn to, uh, the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter five. Matthew 5, Jesus speaking, says in the Sermon on the Mount, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. He's referring to Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. In Numbers 32, God commands them, listen, if you make an oath, if you make a vow, you must do everything that you promised or you will be judged by God. So making an oath to God is something that God takes very seriously. He says, if you make it, you have to keep it. But Jesus says, continuing in verse 34, I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus says, hey, you'd be better off never making vows, you know, because you don't want to be under the bondage of having to keep those vows. And so often when we do, uh, push that panic button, when we're in that situation and we cry out to God, we attach a vow to that. You know, don't we? This is, this is something that I think all of us are guilty of at one point or another in our lives. And, and it's foolish and it's silly. But you know, if we, uh, if we consider the same scenario again, it would be the doctor coming into the room and he looks at you, you tell by the look on his face that, that there's grave news ahead of you. And, and so you, you instantly begin to think or call out to the Lord and, and go, oh, uh, just let it not be that. If you get me out of that, if you help me from that, if you save me from that, just don't let it be that. I'll do anything for you. I'll give money to the church. I'll go talk to my neighbor. Yeah, You know, and man, I've been putting it off and I feel really bad about it, but I'll never drink again. I'll never touch this stuff again. If you bring my wife back to me, I'll never talk to her like that again. I'll love her the way that I should. I'm promising this to you, God. If you just get this cop off my back, I'll never drive like that again. And we make all these promises to God. Jesus says, don't do that. That's silly. It's wrong. But But worse than that, Jesus says that this behavior is actually evil. It's of the devil. Did you catch that at the end of the passage? And that surprises us when we read it. How is this? I mean, I understand it's kind of, it's kind of silly, but how is it evil? How is it of the devil? Well, it presumes that we can buy God's love or favor by offering a gift or altering our behavior. And I'll repeat that because it's worth writing down. This is evil because it presumes that you can buy God's love or favor by offering him a gift or altering our behavior. Listen, if God's love or favor was something that we could purchase or earn, what do you think you would have to do to get it? Do you think any of us could give God something that would make him think, ooh, that's special. I didn't make that in the first place. No, and he made it all. What could you possibly give God that can get his favor? What can you possibly do for God that is greater than what he's already done for you? I mean, he's already given us eternal life. What could we possibly do? You know, it's like I, I bought you a Ninja Turtle. What, what could we possibly offer God? that could be anything greater in magnitude than what he's done for us. It looks like a silly, childish gift, but it's a manipulation in our own mind of almighty God. And that's why it's evil. Jephthah offered this vow because in his fear and lack of faith, he thought that he could do something to get God on his side. You know, if I scratch God's back a little bit, he'll scratch mine. You know, if I give this to God, God will like me more. He'll do more for me. He'll be in my corner in a special and significant way. It's evil. It's a distortion of God, and it's a distortion of grace. You see, God always has our best interests in mind, even in rough times, even in this time now that Jeth is in, when he's going into battle. God still has his best interests in mind. He's allowing it for a purpose and and, and we, we think, you know, well, if I can if I can give something to God or if I can gain the favor of God, then I'll have the best. The best outcome will come out of this manipulation, whatever it is, when we make our vow. You know, if I'm getting pulled over and I said, God, if you get me out of this, I'll do this for you. I'll never drive like this. Which is silly and stupid because I've said that before and I still drive like that. I'm a terrible driver. But, but we think that we'll have the most advantageous outcome when we make those claims. Now, now here's, here's the heavy part about it. In Jephthah's mind, his greatest outcome was Israel's victory over the enemy. But here's the thing to think about. In God's outcome, Jephthah would have had that victory. God already sent his spirit to be upon Jephthah to ensure that victory. But in God's version of the story, Jephthah would have had that victory and he would have had his family. We actually lose when we make these kind of vows. We lose God's heart. We lose the focus of of his path. We get so fixated on the result that we want, we can even miss the greater thing that God wants to give us. Jephthah thought, if I have this, I'll have the best. But God wanted to give him something that was even better than that. And it's a tragedy in this story. It's unnecessary for Jephthah, but this is what we see in the story. We ought to be able to pull out of this story that we can trust God. We can depend on God because he has our best interests in mind. We don't have to make hollow vows to God Jesus says, just don't do that. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Just trust God. God will take care of you. He wants what's best for you. We're going to continue in verse 12. Now, I do have some time in case, in case you're like, oh, father of lights. He's going to go <laughs> long tonight. Uh, we have plenty of time. This is going to be short. I promise you it's a short chapter. We're not even going to read all of it. Just the part that's relevant to the. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. That's heavy stuff. Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in, great, were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon, and when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hands. So why then have you come up to meet me this day to fight against me? Now, if this sounds a little bit familiar, then that's a good sign. That means that you've been coming faithfully on Thursday nights. Because we we read this exact thing in Judges chapter 8. It's actually... The exact same people that said this in Judges chapter 8. You know, Ephraim comes out against Gideon when Gideon wins the victory. And they say, hey, why didn't you wake us up for the battle? You know, why didn't you bring us out there? We wanted to fight too. And uh, Gideon gives them a really soft answer. He flatters them and he sends them home. Uh, But now, after this experience, they're puffed up and they've gotten pretty bold. And they come to Jephthah and they don't just say, hey, why didn't you bring us out for the battle? They go the extra mile and they say, now we're going to we're gonna punish you for it. We're going to burn down your house with you inside of it. And Jephthah says, this is the great part about it. He says, I did call you. He says, I tried to get a hold of you. He didn't answer. You didn't do anything. So when I saw that you weren't going to do anything, I took care of it. Nephraim knew about the war. They didn't care about that. They didn't want to actually be part of the fight. They just wanted the credit for it. And they were jealous that Jephthah was getting the credit for it. They didn't think that Jephthah was worthy of the credit for it the same way that they didn't think that Gideon was worthy of the credit for it. And they were bold, but they were brainless. And I say that because Jephthah, uh, he's an actual warrior, right? He just like killed a bunch of people. What has Ephraim been doing for the last like several hundred years since Gideon? They've been doing absolutely nothing. They didn't go out to fight with Gideon. They haven't gone out to fight since then. So they're a bunch of couch potatoes. And they're sitting around watching sports saying, if I was the quarterback, you know, I would have made that play. You know, but now the quarterback's standing in front of them, and they've insulted him. And these guys don't know what to do with them. And Jephthah... Jephthah is in somewhat of a different situation than Gideon. Now, if you remember from that story, I kind of came down on Gideon because Gideon struck down his own people, but those people were helpless and harmless. Now, these people are bloodthirsty and angry. They're telling Jephthah that they're going to attack him. So Jephthah obliges them with the battle. And we see this starting in verse four. Now, Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead, fought against Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. And the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And they. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to them, are you an Ephraimite? If they said no, then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth, but, you know, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died, was buried in among the cities of Gilead. Jephthah beats them so thoroughly that he captures their home city before they can retreat to it. You know, they're losing the war, so they all take off. And they're like, let's just go home. This guy's crazy. And and Jephthah beats them to their home, and he sets up a checkpoint. And at this che- checkpoint, there's only one question, and it's a simple question. He says, okay, so you want to you wanna go through here? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, are you an Ephraimite? And if they lied and said no, you know, uh, or I assume that they even said yes, the test would still be the same. He'd say, okay, say Shibboleth. And uh, the word shibboleth means an ear of grain or wheat. If you just wanted that fun fact, it's free take it. It's delicious. But the Ephraimites couldn't do it. They had this regional accent, so they couldn't say it right. So, I mean, it would be like uh, if someone, you know, from Boston was here. And it's like, are you from Boston? And they're like, no. And we're like, say car. And then they say ka. You know, we would know. You're a liar! And then, then we could kill him, I guess, if we're, if we're following the story. <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, if I, it's like if I wanted, I was thinking about this when I was working on this message. I actually, when I was in linguistics, I wrote a paper on my wife's family. Uh, because, because they just say things wrong and, <laughs> and evil. <you> know? <laughs> but, but if, if I were to, if I wanted to weed out her family, I would say, okay, say toilet. And they would say, turlet. For no good reason, they added an R. You know, it's like, that's that's not right. It's not true. In no world is toilet turlet. If I wanted, you know, maybe another test. Maybe they passed that one. Say cement. This is actually the one I wrote a paper on. And they would say cement. And that's not right. Why would you do that? That's gross. But <laughs> the, these people had, had this accent. You would say, okay, say shibboleth. And they couldn't do it. They had this regional accent. They would say Sibyleth. They would drop the H from the word or the sh sound. you know. So it, there, was, there was never a more steep punishment for mispronunciation than this one in all the Bible or in probably all of human history. This is how they weeded these people out. And if they said the word wrong, they would take them and they would kill them. Maybe I should end on that note because you're all smiling. <laughs> Don't <face a> <laughs> <accent>. <laughs> Should I end there? No, I'm not going to end there. Okay, I'll I'll end on the heavy note. Um, so <laughs> all right, let's buckle in. Michael's gonna Michael's gonna be mean. So as I read this story, I couldn't help but think, why couldn't Ephraim just be happy for their brothers? You know, maybe it's a simple naive question, and there's probably a lot more that comes into this story than I'm taking into account, but Ephraim did this with Gideon, and now they're doing this with Jephthah. Why couldn't they just simply be happy for them? You know, it's like, they did something good, let's uh, let us let them have their praise. You know, Jephthah deserves the pat on the back, but it enraged them. They wanted the accolades. They couldn't handle that somebody else was getting praised, and and it wasn't them, you know, and 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 we can often be the same way. In Ephraim's case, you can say that, you know, if they wanted the praise, they should have done something to earn it. And right? Isn't that logical? Doesn't that make sense? You know, a kid came in for tutoring a couple of months ago. I think I was telling my wife about this uh, when, it, when it happened. And he was wearing a medal. And and he had this, you know, and it was like the American flag kind and he looked like a rocky you know, when he came in, I don't know if Rocky ever had it, did he? I don't know. But anyways, uh, there was, he was wearing this medal, and it was a very patriotic-looking medal. And, and I said, wow, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that you played in these sports. And he said, I don't. And, and I said, so why do you have a medal? And he said, well, my brother plays uh, baseball. And so I asked him again, because that, that answer didn't make any sense to me. Uh, and I was like, so why do you have a medal? And he said, well, my brother's team, uh, they played in a tournament. They actually didn't even win, but everyone got a medal. But when he got a medal, I wanted a medal. So, you know, my mom, and this is the whole story. His mom went out and got him a medal so that he could have a medal because his brother has a medal. His brother didn't even win the tournament. And I'm looking at this kid. And his brother's not wearing the medal. His brother's got a little bit more dignity than that. I'm looking at him, like, you're, you're, your entire family, none of you deserves a medal. You know? I'm sorry. But what have you done to earn a medal? You've done nothing. None of you. I mean, it's like, he lost the tournament and you were just standing there. You know, it's like, that's, it's just not right to me. But this is, this, you, you see this in children. There's this kind of uh, immaturity where if one kid gets a toy and the other kid sees it and he doesn't get a toy, he'll throw a fit. He'll start crying. And this is, this is what's happening in this story. And it happens with adults. There's this jealousy and envy. And it can turn into this bitter distaste for another individual that has done absolutely nothing to us. They could actually be a very nice person. But we have this bitter distaste in our heart uh, for them because we see them praised and we feel like they don't deserve praise. You know, why can't we just be happy for our brothers and sisters? Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. If you're still in Matthew, you're relatively close. But I read after that, so you're probably not. I'm sorry. Romans 12, verse 15. Romans twelve fifteen says, "Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep." It's in your family. This is this is what families do, and we forget about this so often. And and if a coworker gets a promotion, what's the what's what's often the natural recourse of the other coworkers? They retreat, you know, to a quiet corner so that they can cut that person down. Well, they don't deserve a promotion. Well, if the boss knew them like I knew them, they would give me a promotion instead of that person. We have this jealousy and envy in our heart, so much so that when I, I, you know, I remember when my, when my brother got the McNair scholarship for school, and it's quite an honor. My mom gave me a call, and she was concerned about me, and she said, are you okay? And I said, well, why wouldn't I be okay? And she said, well, because your brother got this scholarship. And I said, well, I'm happy for him. He's my brother. Why can't I? You know, it's 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 absurd. To think that we can react this way, but we so often do. 1 Corinthians, turn there. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 says, So there should be no division in the body, but that is, uh, but that is, its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. I don't normally do this. But uh, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you homework this week. Okay, so you have homework. This is what I want you to do. I want you to seek out the Ephraimite in you. Right? And that might sound weird. But, <laughs> but that's the way I'm going to phrase it, because it, it, it tickles me. I want you to be aware, right, of of how often... You find it difficult to rejoice with someone that's rejoicing or to suffer with someone who's suffering. I want you to ask yourself why you're having this difficulty. Then, here's the fun part. I want you to talk to that person. Right? And this, is, this isn't this is easy. This is humbling. It, actually, I, I found, you know... An example of both of these in my life this week. I found someone that was rejoicing, and I was having trouble sharing in their rejoicing. And I found someone that was really suffering, and I was having trouble sharing in their suffering. And and I wouldn't give you a homework assignment that I haven't done myself, so I actually went ahead of you and talked to both of those people. And it was a terribly awkward thing to do, but it was a beneficial blessing for both them and myself. And, and, and thankfully, only one of those people is here today. You know, the, the other one was going to be here today also. And then they sent me a text and I'm like, yeah, hey, I'm not going to come. I don't know if it's related to this conversation, but, <laughs> but it, you know, I, I, this is what I want you to do. I want you to talk to that person because I, I don't want you, I don't want me to be like Ephraim. And you know, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all one body. We should be able to celebrate without having bitterness in our heart with the person that's celebrating. And we should be able to weep with someone that's weeping without having judgment in our heart towards that person. Now, one of my friends is really going through a rough time. He's really suffering. And I found myself uh, thinking, well, you're suffering because you did stupid things. Is it my job to judge someone when they're suffering? No. I should be suffering alongside of them. I should be loving them. It's not my place to be critical of them. And so I had to apologize to that person. Because Ephraim was in my heart. I couldn't be with that person in their suffering, even though I wanted to be. I have another friend that's rejoicing. He's celebrating. He's super happy. But I found myself thinking, well, there's all kinds of issues that you need to address in your personal life. You shouldn't be so happy. You should really wipe that smile off your face because you're a hot mess, you know? And and I found myself being critical of that person. Is it my job to be critical of that person? Jephthah was celebrating, but I was like Ephraim in my own mind, looking down at them and thinking they shouldn't be feeling the way that they're feeling. And, and it was a good thing for me to address this in my heart. It's a healthy thing for us to consider in our own hearts, because when we don't, we can end up like Jephthah and Ephraim we can end up in battle. We can end up in bloodshed. Because there's bitterness there. There's judgment there. There's things that don't need to be there. If we're family, if we're brothers and sisters, if we love each other, we should be able to rejoice with each other. We should be able to mourn with each other. We should be there for each other without having an obstacle that divides us and separates us from one another. Chapter 12 is another unnecessary thing in the story. It shouldn't have happened. It wasn't supposed to happen. It didn't have to happen. But it does happen when we have these unchecked emotions. We end up cutting each other down instead of building each other up. Amen. I'm letting you out on time. Uh, Next week, we're going to start Samson. It's a wonderful story. So many great lessons in that story. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, how personal it can be for us. And I pray as we do our homework, as we consider our relationships with one another, and as we think about these things that could be in our heart that are completely unchecked, that so often go under the radar. Lord, that you would bring them to the forefront and that you would drive us to talk to people and make things right, to confess things. And it can be painful and it's uncomfortable, but it's healthy and beneficial. It's beneficial for us to get rid of that waste that's in us that doesn't need to be there, that isn't healthy for us. And, Lord, that we can offer that to you, and it's worship to you. It's beautiful to you because you're seeing family members brought together, brothers and sisters, without anything separating them, loving one another. I pray, Lord, that we would consider these things before they lead to battles that we have with people. Or separation that can distance us from people, and Lord, I thank you for. I thank you for your word, and even in these difficult chapters, we can learn life changing lessons. It's in your name I pray, in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. Amen.